0: Allow me to introduce you to Dr. Dagmar Herzog, an historian of sex, from an interview I recorded in 2007 for a film project. We'll also hear from her again later in this episode.
1: It's just upsetting to me, as the daughter of a Protestant theologian who was taught that Nazism was, um, that you know Christians were anti-Nazi, to actually discover that when I read documents from the Third Reich medical doctors, legal theorists, they kind of throw in the anti-Semitism to please the regime. You can sort of tell they're instrumentalizing it. They're doing their little, uh, grant, granting the regime it's its wanting to hear the little anti-Jewish thing. You don't really believe them. They're not really anti-Semitic, not viscerally felt. You read the Protestant clergy and the Catholic clergy? they They hate the Jews, they really do. It's just you feel the hatred coming off the page. They're deeply threatened. It's scary to them, and they blame Jews not just for sexual arality, but also for secularization, for doubt about the truth of the gospel.
0: Question. What's the easiest way to get someone's attention? Bring sex into the conversation. Today we're going to talk about everybody's favorite topic and how the Nazis used it to gain the support of the German churches and most of all, why they went in this direction. It's been almost 85 years since Nazi persecution turned violent on November 9th, 1938, the night we know as Kristallnacht or the November Pogrom. What can we learn from this period in history that might inform us about our own time? What forces were at work then that we might identify in our own country today? And how might we better understand the role of the church, an institution that seems to call forth the very best and the very worst from us? Thank you for joining me on this journey. I'm your host, Rev. Stephen D. Martin. It seems unlikely that educated church people who learned to love their neighbors from the time they were children would find a home among brown-shirted thugs who started fights in the streets. It also seems improbable that the same Christians would turn a blind eye when the concentration camps appeared. But this podcast is about how Auschwitz wasn't built the day Hitler came to power. The Nazis had to begin, like all political movements, as a minority party and slowly build support until they achieved the dominance they sought. In this episode, we'll learn why Germans believed that a pure sexual culture would lead to a brighter future, and how they exploited this, and what came of it over time. First we have to dive deeply into a bit of theology. Remember that theology is at its root about determining ultimate values. It seeks to understand the mind of God so that humans may thrive. The problem as I see it is that high theological debates and pronouncements can serve to oppress. If one person discovers the ultimate truth, then those who don't see it quite the same way can too easily become enemies of that truth. So, remember from an earlier episode that the crisis in German society that fueled the National Socialist Movement was the loss of World War I and the subsequent humiliation and decline that took place in Germany under the Weimar government. It was a death of an old order, an old view of how society should work. And one of the places this could be seen in sharp distinction was in the cabarets of Berlin. The cabaret scene in Berlin during the 1920s was a vibrant and pivotal aspect of cultural life in the city reflecting the tumultuous and transformative nature of that era. Post-World War I, Berlin emerged as a hub of artistic and intellectual activity, and the cabarets played a central role in this Renaissance. During this period, Berlin's cabarets were more than just entertainment venues. They were gathering places for artists, Writers, intellectuals, and political activists. The atmosphere in these establishments ranged from the decadent and hedonistic to the politically charged and avant garde. The performances often pushed boundaries in terms of both content and form, challenging traditional notions of morality, art, and politics. The cabarets featured a wide array of performances, including music, dance, theater, and poetry readings. Jazz, which was gaining popularity, often provided the soundtrack to these evenings, embodying the spirit of modernity and change that defined the era. The performances were not just for entertainment, but often included sharp political satire and political commentary, reflecting the unstable political climate of the Weimar Republic and the struggles of a society trying to rebuild and redefine itself. This period also saw an explosion of creativity in terms of the visual aspects of cabaret. Theatrical costumes, elaborate stage designs, and innovative lighting techniques contributed to an immersive and often surreal experience. These elements, combined with the often risque and taboo breaking performances, made Berlin's cabarets a symbol of the era's radical artistic experimentation and social freedom. The cabaret scene in Berlin was also notable for its inclusivity and defiance of traditional gender roles. It became a haven for the LGBTQ community, which found both expression and acceptance in the cosmopolitan and relatively liberal atmosphere of these venues this openness however also drew criticism and hostility from conservative and nationalist elements in german society people in urban areas seem to tolerate even enjoy this kind of expression and exploration but rural people who've lived in communities that have never enjoyed this kind of diversity can find it offensive. Those in the cities often ask, why can't we all get along? Why can't I do my thing and you do yours? After all, my beliefs and my actions have no effect on your life, so why does it matter? For a little context, think about the Supreme Court case involving Masterpiece Cake Shop and its owner's refusal to serve a gay couple. Well, theology has something to say about this. And before we get into it, let's take a little break. bad things happen to good people that's one of the most fundamental questions in religion prehistoric farmers wondered why crops grew well one year and then failed the next at its most basic level religion probably arose as a way to please the gods who controlled the weather if the gods were happy then good things happened to the people German theologians of the early 20th century called this a deuteronomistic view of history, taken from the work of Julius Wellhausen, who understood that the first five books of the Hebrew Bible were assembled or redacted from four distinctly different sources, each coming from different periods in Israel's history. Wellhausen saw that Deuteronomy was written as a response to the Babylonian exile in an attempt to understand the tragedy of Israel's downfall. It must have happened because Israel was disobedient and God was displeased. By rebuilding the temple and following the law, God would restore Israel to its former glory. So then, according to this view, what you do in your cabaret does affect me because your moral decadence displeases God, and that means our society is doomed to fail. It's not an individualistic thing. If our nation has turned away from God's law and order, then we will be punished for it. If we clean up all this moral depravity then perhaps God will restore us to our former glory. During the Weimar Republic, Berlin had become known for its progressive and open sexual culture, which included a thriving LGBTQ community and a general openness towards sexual freedom and gender identity discussions. However... The Nazis, with their rigid and conservative views on morality, sexuality, and gender roles vehemently opposed this culture, seeing it as degenerate and antithetical to their vision of a morally pure Aryan society. The Nazis targeted what they considered deviant sexual culture as a part of their broader ideological agenda to purify and strengthen German society according to their own stringent moral and racial codes. In their view, any form of sexuality that deviated from their strict norms was not only morally reprehensible, but also a threat to the health and purity of the German nation. Upon coming to power, the Nazis took several actions to dismantle this liberal sexual culture. They shut down bars, clubs, and cafes that were known for being LGBTQ-friendly or for their liberal attitudes towards sexuality, including the infamous El Dorado Club, a famous LGBTQ venue in Berlin. There was also a targeted destruction of literature and research related to sexuality and gender studies, most notably the rating of Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute for Sexual Science, where the Nazis burned its extensive library and archives. The Nazi regime undertook several specific and severe actions against LGBTQ individuals as part of their broader aim to enforce rigid moral and social norms in German society. Central to their campaign was the utilization and expansion of paragraph 175, pre-existing law that criminalized homosexual acts between men. The Nazis broadened this law's scope and intensified its enforcement, leading to the arrest and persecution of thousands of gay men. These individuals were often sent to the concentration camps, where they were subjected to extreme abuse, medical experimentation, and often execution. They were forced to wear pink triangles as a means of identification, symbolizing their criminal status. Furthermore, the Nazis propagated a pseudo-scientific narrative that linked homosexuality to racial degeneracy. They believed that homosexuality threatened the purity and reproductive capacity of the Aryan race. And thus, their efforts to eradicate homosexuality were tied to their broader eugenic policies aimed at racial cleansing. The Nazi regime's actions against LGBTQ individuals were part of a systematic campaign of persecution that included legal discrimination, social suppression, concentration camp internment, and a broader effort to erase LGBTQ identities from the public square. These actions were driven by the regime's ideology of racial purity, social conformity, and an overarching goal to mold German society according to their own authoritarian and heteronormative values. They saw non-traditional sexual behaviors particularly homosexuality, as weakening the reproductive capacity of the Aryan people and thus undermining their racial purity. The regime's focus on procreation and the traditional family unit was aimed at increasing the Aryan population, and any sexual activity that didn't contribute to this goal was deemed harmful. In addition, the Nazis viewed the liberal sexual attitudes and the vibrant LGBT culture of the Weimar area as symptomatic of the moral decay and decadence that, in their opinion, had led to Germany's downfall after World War I. They believed that by eradicating these decadent behaviors and enforcing traditional gender roles, they would restore Germany's strength and moral integrity. The campaign against what the nazis labeled as deviant sexual behavior also served a political purpose it allowed them to marginalize and persecute groups that opposed their regime or did not fit into their vision of a homogeneous society such as the lgbtq community political dissidents and others deemed socially undesirable by scapegoating these groups the Nazis aimed to unify the German population under shared values and norms while eliminating opposition. Entartete Kunst is a German term that translates to degenerate art in English. This concept was central to Nazi ideology in the 1920s and 30s, and was used to denigrate and suppress a wide range of modern art forms. Under the Nazi regime, degenerate art referred to artworks that did not align with the party's ideals. They condemned works that were abstract, experimental, or avant-garde, As well as those that depicted what they considered to be morally or socially degenerate themes. The term was especially applied to modernist art movements such as Expressionism, Dadaism, Cubism, Surrealism, and Fauvism. The Nazis believed that such art was a sign of a society in decline, viewing it as an affront to their ideals of classical beauty and purity. They associated degenerate art with mental illness, moral decay, and racial inferiority, often linking it to Jewish or communist influences, which they saw as corrupting German culture. When we come back, we'll once again hear from Dagmar Herzog author of Sex After Fascism as she makes the connection between all of this and the churches.
1: Early on, the Nazis have no idea that they're going to get so much popular support. They initially, of course, have to beat the left, which they do physically violently put leftists in prison and beat them up on the streets. They have to get rid of the opposition. They also urgently need the support of the churches. They work towards a concordat with Rome. They are very concerned at getting Protestant church leaders to endorse them and support them. And it's very useful in this context to run a campaign against sexual immorality. The churches are thrilled. They have been losing their congregants' support on the issue of sex for quite some time. Germany had the most liberal sexual culture in the world in the early 20th century. And the churches are deeply threatened by this. They are deeply threatened by Gentile secularization. Socialism, social democracy was part of the threat. The threat of Bolshevism and a you know Russian revolution happening in Germany was a threat. Certainly, many church leaders shared nationalist views with the Nazis. But anti-Bolshevism and nationalism don't explain it. Just it's the Gentiles who are running away and the Christians blame it on the Jews and they're happy, happy to see the Nazis claim to be solving the problem.
0: That's Professor Dagmar Herzog, author of Sex After Fascism, from an interview I did with her in 2007. Of all the reasons why the churches supported Hitler in 1933, this one made the most sense to me. The Deutsche Christen movement generally supported the enforcement of Paragraph 175 and the broader Nazi policies regarding sexuality and morality. This alignment was part of their wider support of the Nazi regime's principles, especially those concerning racial purity and traditional values. Paragraph 175, once again, was a law in Germany that criminalized homosexual acts between men. The Nazis expanded and strictly enforced this law as part of their campaign to purify German society according to their rigid moral codes. The Deutsche Christen, who sought to align Christianity with Nazi ideology, largely supported these measures. They believed in promoting a moral code that was in line with what they perceived as traditional Christian values, which for them included the condemnation of homosexuality. Later, the Nazis engaged in widespread surveillance and policing to identify and apprehend LGBTQ individuals. The Gestapo compiled lists of homosexuals, and people were often denounced by neighbors or acquaintances. The regime's actions created an atmosphere of fear and repression for LGBTQ people in Germany. But what about the churches across the vast spectrum of society? Was there resistance to these oppressive policies? Did people like Bonhoeffer and Niebuhr and leaders in the confessing church speak out against this impression? If they did, we have no record of it. And here's why. First, remember that churches are rarely the most progressive institutions in any society. Churches have a deep investment in the status quo, and they seek to preserve it. Jesus taught, of course, that new wine requires new wineskins. Churches rarely want to do more than just patch up an old leaky wineskin. Second, remember from our last podcast that Luther's teaching about the two kingdoms created a natural division between matters of the church and politics. Enforcement of paragraph 175 and persecution of minorities was a matter for the state to deal with. It had nothing to do with the spiritual nature of the church. The confessing church's resistance to the Nazis was not over matters of injustice like those of sexual politics, but instead the Nazi government's meddling in personnel matters in the church. And that's quite a story, and I'll get into that much more in depth in a later podcast. But finally, in the early 1930s, church leaders and pastors were mostly concerned with negotiating their place in relationship to the new government. Being on the outs with the new government could cost a church its parishioners, and no one enjoys preaching to an empty congregation. And on the other side, it was clear that the Deutsche Christen-affiliated pastors were enjoying sanctuaries full of people who were inspired by what Paul Althaus referred to as this turning year of 1933, a gift and miracle of God. So where do you stand in all this? Remember, this podcast assumes that history is only clear with the benefit of hindsight, and that it's much more difficult to discern one's direction when one does not know the outcome. I'd like to think, though, that faith in Jesus offers one a compass that points one in the right direction even when the destination is unclear. How would you live your life if you lived during those times? The question is relevant during any period. We find ourselves in. This podcast is produced and written by me, Reverend Stephen D. Martin. I would like to thank those who have taught me about this subject over the past 20 years Robert Erickson, Susanna Heschel, Doris Bergen, Hartmut Lehmann, Victoria Barnett, Manfred Gylas, Wolfgang Krogel. Rudolf Weckerling, Richard Steigman-Gall, Rob Shank, and dozens of others. Please subscribe to this podcast and please consider supporting it through visiting our Patreon page. Thank you and join us for our next episode.